Well, hello everybody. Um, good morning. It is the 14th of May and um, uh, I'm sitting here in a bright sunlit office um, with my friend Gus Selito from uh, Byfield Consultancy. Um, my name's Andy Ellis and uh, uh, this is the latest in a occasional series of podcasts that we do from Practico here where we talk about costs and we also talk about the sort of people that we interface with and work with um, and uh, broaden the discussion uh, um, a wee bit for your interest. And um, so, Gus, you're, a, you're a, a, a legal PR specialist. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Byfield and what you do. Good morning, Andy. Very, very pleased to be here and um, pleased to work with Practico and, uh, as you say, become friends over, over the years we've worked together. Uh, I've been working in legal PR for 20 years now and uh, started my career in a big PR agency where I then moved across into an in-house role working for a firm called Russell Jones & Walker, which then went on to become the first listed law firm through a flotation in Australia. And that's quite an interesting series of how both what I do, legal PR, has evolved and uh, the... The business model of law has evolved over those years. Um, Russell Jones and Walker was and is a firm that has used PR very, very effectively to highlight injustices, um, but also to really help uh, individuals and organisations to bring forward claims, meritorious claims that have gone through the court system. And it's been a really interesting evolution to work in um, uh, an environment where PR, um, working alongside really good lawyers um, and other practitioners in bringing claims through the courts and bringing those into the public awareness uh, has been really, really fascinating. That's kind of the history of how I started. And as I say, the, the model has really evolved now where law firms, the top 200 particularly, barrister sets and organisations that work with law firms such as Practico, third-party litigation funders, technology companies. The the industry really has become much, much bigger over the years and profile raising and PR uh, are a really important element for law firms and providers to, to raise their profiles in uh, an evolving market. And... Um... With that in mind, so how much of your how much of your business is involved with, if you like, general PR for law firms, as opposed to more sort of project based stuff that's looking at either specific pieces of litigation or specific issues within the law? What, what, what sort of what sort of proportion of your work is in one side of that line to the other? Well, as you know, Andy, the the litigation is the the distressed purchase work, and it's the really interesting, uh, meaty side of our work where you can get involved in a, a litigation. If it goes all the way through to trial, then it gets really, really interesting because you, you actually work with lawyers uh, and companies such as, as Practico through, through that whole court process in our, in our role to manage the media interest and to make sure that the arguments that the public uh, hears about through, through the newspapers predominantly are balanced and fair. So we work very, very closely within that process. Um, that is a, a smaller part of our, of, our, of our work. We tend to focus more on promoting law firms and legal sector businesses and helping to raise their profiles. And that tends to be ongoing uh, work o- over a calendar year. The litigation PR side of the business is, as I say, more distressed purchase, but really, really interesting. And it's an area that we're seeing a lot more demand in, particularly with the developments going on in commercial litigation. Mm, absolutely, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come to those a wee bit, and uh, a wee bit later. The, um, now, recently, I remember you, 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 were, you told us you were involved with the um, International Disputes Week, London International Disputes Week. So what was, uh, how did that go as far as you can tell? Well, I know my colleague Deborah and uh, colleagues Deborah and Kevin went along to a couple of sessions and thought they, they, were, they were well run. Um, but um, uh, is, it, is it early enough to get some sort of idea about success of that um, enterprise? 
I think the success is for, was from the 7th of, to 10th of May. So uh, I think all the people who were there, the organising committee, uh, the firms that participated and the delegates are all digesting as we speak mm. uh, how it went over that period. But I can tell you that the welcome drinks, there were, it was a packed room, about 500 people. Mm. Uh, the uh, sessions were extremely well attended we were involved in helping on the PR aspects. So we were involved in a lot of the meetings at the committee level, to at the organizing committee level, mm. to, to, to sort of plan how the PR would support those events. And it seems to have been a, a great success. It's the first time that London has hosted International Disputes Week. Um, it comes at a very interesting time uh, for uh, London's uh, reputation as the leading uh, Centre for International Dispute Resolution, obviously with the broader discussions we're having about Brexit, mm. but also because, uh, as you know, we're seeing a lot more international centres now competing for that work, Paris, Amsterdam, and, and the Middle East, which is which is which is not so new. Mm. Um, so I think there's been a real need and desire to have this here in London, and as I say, from what we can tell so far, it's been a great success. Mm. That's good to hear. I mean, it. it, it what was the sort of origin of them trying to um, trying to do it without a sort of a big commercial sponsor? Because that's that that, that, that it seems to have been a slightly more sort of organically grown uh, event than uh, than the sort of things that happen on the you know the general international legal conference circuit sort of thing. So how did that? Do you know how much about how that came about? The limited information I have about that is that, you know, it's the first time it's it's happened here. And um, I think the organising committee wanted to get as many relevant and interesting parties involved as possible. So, mm. the, so there were a number of, of sponsors, corporate sponsors, um, with a number of different interests in, in the law, um, who, who participated and sponsored. Uh, and um, as far as I can tell that, that's how it organically developed over having one huge headline sponsor mm. if it comes to london again which i'm confident it will um that may or may not change mm. uh, again from what i can tell in in the early sort of um the early days after following the week uh, i think those who sponsored the event and attended um had some really really good conversations with the delegates other mm. partners mm. and the international legal community there was a very big international presence there Mm. Uh, and again, I think that may have helped to sort of have lots and lots of different interests um, being represented rather than one big yeah. headline sponsor. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. I, th I think that um, to the extent that it seemed to have a flavour of being organised sort of by lawyers for lawyers and, you know, I, I think that, that uh, there's a... It, harder to work, I think perhaps with a committee maybe, but at the same time... Um, there's uh, uh, there's also slightly less interference as well uh, than there is if it's a sort of one of these sort of big corporate events. I think that was um, uh, that was pretty much a positive. So I'm glad it seemed to go well. As I say, you know, from the from the fr from the sort of interface of uh, of a couple of colleagues who went along to some of the events, then uh, um, it, it seemed to work, and um, you know it was well attended. And you know, I think Deborah came back thinking it was a couple of sessions that she went to were really good. Um, and uh, yeah, let's hope it comes back to town again soon. Um, now, in terms of, uh, you know, enough about you. <laughs> uh, in terms of some of the things that we thought we might talk about, um, I know you're very interested in one of the particular developments in uh, commercial litigation uh, at the moment, and that's really in the group action space, to use the sort of PR terminology. Um, so what, what are your thoughts about that and the way that it's moving? I think it's a fascinating arena, and uh, you, you said enough about me, but I am a <laughs> PR, so I'll, I'll, have, I'll have one more yeah. penny's worth. Um, it's not a new phenomenon, clearly, completely new phenomenon. I, I'm back, back in my Russell Jones and Walker days, I, I remember doing the, the Argos Sofa case, which was uh, a case of Argos, uh, not sure if they manufactured them, but sofas that Argos at least sold catching okay. fire oh yeah, yeah. and um we we saw a big group action around that and we've seen trade union group actions over the years in equal pay cases for example but i think the the really interesting development on the sort of more commercial side if you like is is the um 
the change that happened, which now um, allows uh, these these group actions to to take place, particularly in consumer actions. And so we're seeing a lot more interest uh, by law firms and consumers, early days there, but I think consumers are becoming much more savvy about their rights and law firms are becoming much more savvy in how to promote these cases mm. that we're going to see uh, a lot more of these big uh, class action, group actions, which clearly have a, a very American flavour to them. The, 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 the real area of interest there is, of course, these cases do rely on a large element of public relations to ensure that a class is built, if you like, that a group is, is built. Yeah. And that's where people like us come in, working alongside the lawyers to get to the public, essentially, if, if it's a consumer claim, to, to get to that class mm. uh, and to communicate with them before, during and after the, the, hit, you know, the, the timeline of, of the claim. Of course, it does raise interesting issues around, you know, are we becoming more litigious? I'd be interested very much to get your views on that. Mm. And, you know, are we going down that whole American ambulance chasing? Um, that's, again, not a new debate. Very interested to get your views on it. But as a, as a key development in commercial litigation uh, and consumer claims, it's a really interesting arena. And, of course, the third-party funding model comes into that in the big way. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's something that, um, as a practice, if I include, you know, sort of legacy Ellis Grant stuff, going back to the, um, the mid-'90s, um, I mean, that's how far back our experience goes with, you know, group multi-party actions. Um, and that still carries on. What I think we're, if we look ahead to the next sort of couple of years and beyond, um, then I think what you've alighted upon there, which is, which is uh, the, the differences between, let's call it a class action and a group action, um, they, uh, they're, they're, they're significant. And I think they're, they're very significant um, in the sense that, from a cost perspective anyway, particularly if you're talking about a, um, a, an opt-out class action, the sort of thing they're trying to get off the ground with Merricks and, uh, and MasterCard, um, that obviously for the whole model to work, they've got to get legal costs back as well as, comp as, well as compensation at, you know, at, at the end. Who does that belong to? <laughs> um, can the uh, if it's a third party funded case can they actually can, can they actually draw on some of the unclaimed pot of damages to get their part of their bounty back what how does that divide up between uh, under in the sort of CRS CRA sense um, uh, how much of that unclaimed pot of damages goes back towards a sort of a, a you know a, a, a quasi charitable um, uh, home um, now these are these are these these run completely counter to any you know sort of statutory or co previously previous statutory or common law frameworks of um, who the costs belong to. The costs are supposed to belong to the client. Now you know the client is a is is almost quite a nebulous concept sometimes. I think in some in, in an American class action. So there's a lot of things for people to get their heads around when it comes down to it. And you know, and I think probably we're waiting for, if you like, a more um, a more manageable piece of a more manageable claim to come along, you know, size-wise, something that isn't everybody, you know, who's ever had a Mastercard, you know, which is runs to millions of people, you know, to uh, uh, somewhere between there and you know, too smaller group, you know, to really uh, to really te stress test all the um, uh, all the ramifications of it, but. Um, Certainly, um, you know, that's something that seems to us is going to, when it does take off, I think it will take off, um, is going to need your expertise um, because there's got to be a new, more modern way of reaching and updating the client base um, compared to us um, where um, the courts are going to the courts and tribunals are, are, are going to be interested in how you manage the cost of this process as it as it goes through, um, and uh, that's um, uh, that's potentially quite exciting for us. Um, it's certainly something that um, 
could keep us in and involved with a long-running piece of litigation, um, which is uh, obviously everybody wants that um, because it, it, it helps to balance off, as you talk, as you talk about, the, the distressed purchase element of our work, which is, you know, every so often somebody can't settle their costs. They come to us. Hopefully we do a great job. Everybody's happy with it. Where's the next one? Well, I don't know. Next time, you know. <laughs> next time, next time something really bad happens. Thanks, we know where you are. Oh, right. <laughs> um, so we're always having to constantly sort of, you know, reinvent ourselves. Um, uh, not in terms of what we do, but in terms of our client relations and reaching people and all the time and so forth. Um, so, um, in terms of um, uh, in terms of how to manage um, those very large groups. Um, have you come across um, interesting ways to do that that you think you could be involved in directly or indirectly? I think it's a very much a developing area and I, in the next 12, 18 months, we're going to see a lot of innovation in this area, including on the cost side, I believe, which again, I um, want to continue having a conversation with you about was, as we have been and continue to do so about how this area is going to evolve for both of our businesses. Certainly in relation to public relations, the industry itself has developed hugely as a result of uh, digital media, 24-hour news, mm. uh, and the way we consume news. We were having a conversation earlier, and we're doing a podcast, and more and more people are now listening to podcasts on the way into work. And these are small, subtle, but important changes in how to reach consumers. I think in terms of handling large claims and this is more akin to your business um, because I know how well you use technology here at Practico but public relations needs to start adopting some of these mechanisms as well in order to be able to identify groups through analytics and then mm. find the best way of communicating with them. Mm. I think our industry needs to evolve from beyond newspapers and that traditional way of reaching people uh, and social media even which is pretty actually sophisticated now, but it's almost a mature market. Yep. Social media is very much an accepted part of how you reach people through Facebook. But it's actually identifying that class and then making sure you have mechanisms. And I think that's where analytics and AI could have a really interesting role. And there are some companies now who are sort of bridging that gap between technology, advertising, public relations. And that's going to be a really interesting area of the market to start looking at. Mm. Um, in terms of... PR, in its most traditional and obvious sense, this is all about communication. And uh, as you know, the, the timeline of a claim can be very, very long. So from book building and identifying the class right through to then building that cl claim and that case within the public consciousness through the media mm -hmm. and all its forms, and then continuing to communicate at key junctures within the case, and then making sure the conclusion of the case all the way to settlement and mm. getting the money to the right people. Mm. PR has a really, really important part to play within all of that. Where PR needs to grow up now is, as I say, to start bridging the divide between technology, AI, traditional media relations, and how to bring all of that together to communicate with people. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose that's the same... It's the same probably whether you're talking about a, an opt-out or an opt-in class action because I'm, and I'm, I'm speculating here, but I'm guessing that in order to um, protect the integrity of, a, of an opt-out class action, you've probably got to show that you've done the most you can to, uh, to, to, to highlight the case, to it, it, it give people the chance, if you like, to opt out if they don't, you know, if, if they don't want to be in it. Um, and and to that extent, um, uh, maybe it's just as as it is, it, it's the same job. It's just got a slightly different nuance to it in terms of whether it's opt in or opt out. Um, but in terms of actually uh, um, highlighting um, uh, to the right people um, the existence of a the existence of a, of a of a cause of action what they have to do about it, if anything, and what they, you know, and, and what happens if they don't do anything about it um, is something that you're that, that you're going to need to boil down to some, you know, in this day and age, to some pretty short messages. 
Completely, and and uh, I agree in terms of the if if you are opted in automatically. So if you look at the Mastercard case, yeah. I mean, it's just such a huge. You know, it's it's it begs a Q and A that if you're part of that class, what happens? You know, yeah. how, how do you how are you involved? What's the process? How long does it last? Yeah. How much are you entitled to? Yeah. Uh, all of that is is really key communication, or else you've got this huge class that are part of something that they're not quite sure what's going on and what the ramifications are. So the communication is nuanced and different, but yep. equally important in an opt-out or an opt-in scenario. Yes, yes absolutely. Um, and um, are you aware of it? Because I mean, you know, we, we hear about MasterCard quite a lot because it's, it's, it's either coming up to an appeal or it's going to be... I think it's been remitted back to the cat, isn't it, because it's uh, just the first appeal one, but whether there could be another appeal or not, I don't know because, you know, we're not involved. Are you aware of anything else that's actually getting off the ground yet or is it still uh, any other sort of forms of, uh, of class actions that are getting off the ground? Again, I think it comes back to your point about, you know, we're waiting for that one yeah. that's a bit more manageable um, and that almost sets a, a bit of a, a test a test road for us all at different levels, including for litigators, mm. um, but everyone involved in 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 the process. Um, from the lawyers I talk to and people like you and others who handle the administration around these sort of class actions, group actions, including third-party funders, mm. there's a lot of conversation going on and particularly um, in line with the changes that took place around consumer redress I think we're we're still waiting for a number of these cases to get off the ground, but they are mm. they are coming. Mm. Uh, we know that um, you know there are some active cases like the trucks cartel, for example, yeah. uh, which which are ongoing. They're off the ground, and we are likely to see more in the retail space. I think the interesting thing is here is that the the competition authorities seem to be uh, there's a more criticism of our competition laws in the UK and how it works in terms of consumer redress. Yeah. Consumers tend to feel that they're getting a bad deal. And I think the competition authorities, therefore, are trying to show their teeth a little bit more as well. Mm. And if you take those two pressures, uh, if you like, alongside the fact that the legal um, environment for these kinds of actions is continuing to develop, then we've got a really interesting state of affairs to, to keep an eye on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I completely agree with that. And you, you asked me earlier if, if you thought, um, if I thought probably more as a layman really as to whether we were as a, a, as a society becoming more litigious, then I think for a long time now we've been on that sort of, sort of slow path. Um, I mean, PPI stuff has been around for forever now, you know, and that's almost like its own, you know, its own ecosystem, you know, plus the people that, you know, phone you up and say, tell you you've had an accident. Uh, uh, we're not talking about that. We're talking about something that's really, that, that, that's, that's past that, I think, aren't we? Um, and uh, the, the challenges, I think, are going to be uh, in the areas that you suggest and also... Um, probably the effects of things like data breaches and so on and so forth. I mean, I think that that seems to me to be something that is almost like inevitably many, many, many accidents waiting to happen, you know, that are going to affect huge classes of people that can only be reached and, you know, lassoed and corralled and communicated with in a modern sense. You know, we've had every... In the time we've been operating, we've seen, if you like, two, um, you know... Extremes, you know, way back in the in the, well, so way back in the, you know in the last in the last century, <laughs> uh, with the uh, with the miners' claims for vibration white finger respiratory disease and so on and so forth, the, the, the you were allowed to have a recoverable cost of advertising um, for membership of the group. Now this would this would take place at various stages and it would normally be, you know, post judgment on causation and so on and so forth. You would have a runoff scheme where people would be able to apply for compensation and the court would set cut off dates and you could you could you could advertise for it in a limited way. So you'd have your normal means of communication through um, you know trade union branches and so on and so forth. But then what about retired people? And it would really just come down to okay, well you're allowed to put in so many adverts of such a size in local newspapers. That's so we're way way past that. 
uh, now if you if you pitch it, you know, merely another, you know, um, 15, 20 years afterwards. Um, to the other extreme, which was, you know, within more recent memory, but the uh, uh, the the Trafigura case in uh, in Ivory Coast, twenty nine thousand claimants, totally different logistical um, uh, problem. Which is, you know, how do you, you know, that the, these were this is a you know third world country um, with people that don't even have traditional addresses. Uh, where you were communicating through, you know, sort of, you know, uh, uh, village elders and the like and uh, having to send teams of people out there and, you know, the, the, as you know, it's been well documented, the problems they had with distribution and so on and so forth. So we've seen these, you know, sort of uh, uh, um, like, you know, the very old-fashioned way and then in very recent times, you know, a, a, you know, a very modern but real problem in a particular circumstance. But I think what we're talking about here is still things that are in our jurisdiction, people living in the UK for the most part, who receive their communication and their news and their alerts pretty much on their mobile phone mm. now. And that's the way it's done, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I don't know many people who don't work like that, you know, even old codgers like me, you know, use Apple Pay and so on and so forth and, uh, you know, do most of my banking on a mobile phone these days. Um, so that's how we do things. And I listen to, and like you, I listen to podcasts and that's how I hear about things and um, I go on Twitter and I follow the right people and, you know, and, and therefore my, my, my alerts to things, even things like legal updates these days, they're not through traditional means. They're, um, they're, they're you know, they're, they're through social media and links from social media to other places. Um, so, you know, is that, is that, how do you, long, long preamble to the question is, is that, you know, but how, how do you migrate or adjust from the old way of communicating with people, mainstream media, to the new way of communicating with people, what do you need to do to 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 be on top of all of that? Well, I'm I'm smiling as as you were telling that that very interesting story and two parallels there, uh, you know, going from vibration white finger and I did a lot of those claims yeah. back in the day, taking out the big adverts in in the lo- in the local Welsh media, yeah, uh, right through to the Trafigura case, which, as you said, you know, was communication through village elders. Mm. Uh, and the reason I was smiling is that, yes, it has evolved and it's evolved to a different form of reading your tablet, if you like, your yep. phone, uh, via than reading you know, an, an elder coming to you in the village, which probably there is a local library there and they're looking at Google yep. uh, for alerts. Mm-hmm. So I think the good old forms of communication, this isn't about, uh, you know, often in legal services, there is an argument that, you know, AI is going to revolutionize the whole world and people will stop being people and, you know, legal services will completely change. I think mm. there's there's a place for that argument. But in the same way, communication, it's the old things that work really, really well. But it's how do you make sure that you're evolving and adapting with the new technologies that are coming in, the new ways of consuming the media and the, the, the new ways that people like to get their news to ensure that you're reaching them in mm. the most effective way. So advertising definitely still has a place face-to-face communication like we're doing now, which is then transmitted yep. to hopefully hundreds of thousands of people hundreds listening in. Of hundreds of you thousands. You wouldn't believe how many people oh. listen to this podcast. Well, I... I Don't look, because it's going to shock you. Well, I've <laughs> got to speak to my IT people as soon as I get back because I'm expecting Overload. Our, our website yeah, exactly. to crash. Crash, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yes. <laughs> so really, Andy, to, your example's a great one because... In those v, in those vibration white finger cases, advertising was very very effective. Yeah, uh, and the Trafficura cases was full of all kinds of different problems in terms of you know how to get to those claimants, who who the claimants were, etc. That's a tricky one as a case study. Uh, however, both old and new forms of communication would have worked equally well there from the the elders going into the village and talking to people mm. right through to them going to the local library and getting their news feed yeah. on, on the public internet service, which I'm sure they, they, they do use there. Mm. So to summarise the answer to your question, it's about blending the old with the new, traditional media with new media, uh, and making sure that your demographic, you've got that really worked out well. And I think this is where, particularly in opt-in cases, analytics is a, a big role to play. In you know how 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 does that person like to consume news? What time do they get up? What time do yeah. they go to bed? Yeah. What's the best time to reach them? Yeah, 
And I think, yes, I remember, I can't remember who I was speaking to now, but I think it was in the early days of the VW claims. I think somebody somebody told me that they were deliberately trying to put the, um, to make the, the, the web interface for signing on as a potential claimant look like the sort of website you would do if you were buying a car. Right, you know, now that's that 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 I thought. Oh yeah, I, I get that. What what a, what a good idea. You know, that that's that that's the right sort of that's the right sort of thinking. I would imagine for uh, you know for, for for the way that these sort of claims are going to be publicised in future. Um, make it, and also I suppose the way that law, lawyers need to communicate with clients, because you know if if, if you go back to the what what we're used to, you know the um, you know. The, the, in order to comply with what they needed to, the sort of way that lawyers would update and communicate with their clients when they're not speaking to them face-to-face and probably aren't going to speak to them face-to-face, some of them ever, you know, just writing them a long, huge legal letter isn't going to cut it. I mean, it, you, know, you have to... Presumably it's a happy medium between actually getting over what could be quite complicated an explanation of quite complicated facts and issues and maybe choices that people need to make in a way that the layperson is going to understand. Now that, that, now, that doesn't come naturally to all lawyers, I would imagine, being able to communicate that way. So do you work with lawyers in that way as well? Yes, we do. And I, I think that uh, you, you mentioned it to me earlier this morning. Lawyers are very creative. I thought that was an interesting word you yeah, used because yeah, yeah, I, I agree. In a good way. In, not in a good pejorative way. term at all. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think there's this, this sort of uh, perception that lawyers tend to be in these, you know, dusty offices and sort of everything um, sort of passes them by. I disagree. Mm. Uh, law firms are investing heavily in technology. They're, yep. they're actually starting their own new technology uh, seed companies uh, and they're investing in them. And I think lawyers have and will evolve as as the market keeps evolving. Um, and going back to your point, um, how we like to buy things, I think we can learn a lot from Amazon Prime, how we use banking apps now, yeah. how we use Netflix, mm. and the legal process and indeed the cost process. Um, and I'd like to ask you a couple of yeah. questions to... Uh, with that parallel in mind, how is the cost process sort of modernizing? Uh, but if we look at certainly the claims process and, and keeping in touch with uh, your your clients, mm. be they consumers or businesses, we want that much more immediate, clear, you know, get it now kind of information. Yeah. And I think Amazon Prime, Netflix, um, good modern banking apps are really good examples of that. Going back to the sort of the dusty perception of lawyers, one of the areas that um, that has also been um, very prevalent is in is in the costs mm. process. is a very traditional, uh, you know, one of the sort of the bastions of the whole litigation process. Yes. How is that modernising, Andy? Because clearly, our conversations, I know, Practico has really been pushing hard on on modernising the whole cost management process. And I'd be yes. I'd be really interested. Yes, to um, hear where you are with that. Thank you. Um, uh, I think it, it falls. It, there's two buckets. There's the things that we can control, and there's the things that we need other part people to join in with us on because we can't be the only one in the army marching in step. So, in terms of the things that we can control ourselves, we can control. We, ha, you know, we, it's up to us how we how we work on our own internal processes. Uh, in terms of how efficient we can be at getting the raw data from the uh, from the law firm and turning it into the work product, be that a budget report or a bill or a set of points of dispute about somebody somebody else's bill. Now, um, we've invested quite heavily in terms of our own expertise in. Um, uh, Excel, which is not particularly revolutionary, um, but it, it's still the best basis to work with numbers. And you know, it, it, I suppose it tells you all you need to know about the cost world that that is thought that was thought to be very leading edge. You know, when we, when we started to do that seven years ago, even though spreadsheet technology has been you know the default uh, way of looking at numbers by most businesses, you know, for twenty five years. Um, and it, the sort of process improvements that we're looking to make in that uh, and are getting help with um, are things that just help us and make our service, hopefully, more efficient. 
um, and being able to respond to getting reports out faster from lots and lots of data. Um, also, in terms of how we present that to clients, um, we, we still need to do a lot more work on this, um, but we need our general reports to produce dashboard data visualisation ways because that's methods because that's how our ultimate clients want to consume the information and data about money Um, and we learn that from our clients who tell us what their own corporate clients are if you like you know what how much time they've got to look at stuff what they need to look at the impact it needs to have and the way that options are presented you know, so you, 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 we've we've had to we, well, we've we wanted, we've been pleased to move away from the idea that somehow you've got to show your client this is all the work we've done. You know, you could, you know, you need to, you know, satisfy them about that, but that's not the story. It's what does that, you know, what does that show? Where should we be concentrating our effort? What are the what are the arguments that are going to have the biggest swing on the result? And, and, and that sort of report has to be pithy, it has to be pictorial, um, and, and that's, that's the way forward. And we can control that. Now, the, that's one side of the line. The rest of it, the are we the only people in the army marching in step, is far more long-range, far more problematic, and something that we can't do on our own. So by, by that, what I mean is this, that um, as we discussed uh, earlier, um, and it's probably worth saying again, I think there's a positive case to be made about cost shifting in litigation in this jurisdiction as being part of access to justice. And um, it, it, it might be a nuisance, it might be unwieldy, um, but it's still something that should be part of the justice system because you should be able to be uh, to come out clean from a you know subject to reasonableness and so on and so forth um, from a piece of litigation in which you've been successful, including the cost side, and it shouldn't have to just be swept up in a you know in a in a big bundle of stuff. Um, it, 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 it's 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 its own topic. It's legitimate to uh, uh, to expect that you should get your cost back if you're successful in litigation. It's legitimate that you should have the expectation that there's an on cost if you embark on a piece of litigation or fail to defend it. In terms of in terms of the costs, um, now, in terms of because that is in itself going to continue to give rise to disputes, the efficiency with which that dis, it, that dispute is resolved is really important. That's the, that's that that that's the big thing. And you know, our experience over the last few years is, for a long time, is that particularly with the larger cases that the system doesn't really lend itself to it and it needs to because if if we're you know if if we're going to recognize the direction of travel which is at the lower value end we're going to be talking about less cost shifting and less discretion and more fixing of costs and so on and so forth when you do get the larger cases when you do get the when you are dealing with the bigger numbers it is just ridiculous that you could be in a situation where if you were to go through right to the end of cost assessment following the case, that cost assessment would take longer than the trial that gave rise to it. Now, that, that, that's got to change, it seems to me, and we can't change that on our own. And can I ask, Andy, is, is it technology that lies at part, partly at the heart of the solution or do we need to rethink the way that litigation itself um, takes place that little bit of our world that little that, that that bit of litigation that is that is our world um i think that that has to be that has to be rethought you know we've done all the hard yards in terms of being able to get yourself to the position of having the data electronically uh and uh, to be shuffled electronically and represented quickly um you know that that can be done now we should be able to answer questions that may come during the course of an assessment from a, a judge to say, uh, given a few what-if scenarios, we shouldn't have to disappear for you know sort of three days with towels over our heads, you know, to um, to come up with the answer to that. Um, but ultimately, um, it still seems to me that that there has not been sufficient attention given to what the actual process should be 
of how arguments are conducted in court about costs. Because what happens is is that everybody comes back with a with a, a an expression called, well, yeah, you're going to have to do that line by line. You know, a detailed assessment means detailed assessment, which means you look under the bonnet and you look at everything. Well, you can't look at everything. So it's a, but but if you're going to move away to a sort of more sophisticated looking at a way of looking at it in terms of you know sampling and extrapolation or whichever way it's going to be, um, testing things and then uh, 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 extending them over uh, 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 over different groups and subgroups of costs within a bill. Um, you need to be able to be freed up to to have it run like that. Um, and you need to be able to present the data and the arguments. And it's a good thing if you can do that properly because actually what happens is is that in, in conventional assessments, you run out of time, you've got lots more to, you've got lots more to, to, to do, you're going to be relisted in months to come back and do it again. And all it does is just forces you to go in a corner and settle it. Now, I think we should be able to do better than that. And I think the way forward is to do to to, to have um, forms of assessment that are uh, looking at it. The material's there now, phase by phase, um, budget area by budget area. Um, you've already got it in relation to costs that have been budgeted. You're going to depart upwards or downwards by how much, as opposed to if there's departure, you don't throw it all away and just look at it. You know line by line. But before you get to that point, there's a whole lump of a bill where it hasn't been cost managed because it, the work had already been done before you got to court in it. Now, where I agree with, with Jackson, didn't provide the solution and I haven't got an instant one, is, is that you've got, to find some way of, you've got to find some way of shortcutting that process as well. You know, you know, his way might be just get rid of detailed assessment, who needs it? You know, it should either be fixed or everything should be budgeted. I think we can. I think we can do better than that. That serves the justice of a of a given set of circumstances. But that's a long haul. You know, we've got to win hearts and minds for that. We've got to actually come up with some ideas. Easy for me to state the problems, harder to actually solve them. But to to, to me, that's got to be the way forward. It seems to me that even if you're talking about you know on these large on these large commercial cases, if you, even if you're talking about costs in the tens of millions of pounds, you, you should still be able to resolve those with the same expedition and creativity that, that, you, that you do solving the source dispute. I'm just taking that point about the, these huge complex cases. Tell me a little bit more about how group actions impact, or rather how, how does cost budgeting and cost management work in these huge consumer claims that we're likely to see more of, including the MasterCard, and within that, how is Practico working more closely with funders? Well, the um, I'm not just just taking micro, uh, Mastercard out of it in, in terms of like the Merrick's action. You know, I, I would we're not involved with that, and you know, I don't I don't imagine that I don't imagine that we would be. So we're, I can only talk in generalities of you know if it were cases like that. Um, it seems to me that the the more that costs live outside of clients. And, and and are something that is you know that, that is the uh, domain of of funders and lawyers. The more the court ought to be interested in um, uh, how reasonable they are as you're going along, um, particularly when the eventual losing party is going to have to be expected to make a contribution to those, you know, distinct from uh, uh, distinct from damages. Um, so therefore, some form of extension of cost budgeting into those. Areas seems to us to be something that ought to happen, um, and uh, in terms of our ability to, to 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 assist that, like you know, like anybody who's been used to dealing with big cases, then you know we have uh, we we can collate, summarise, represent cost data, group it correctly, check that it's in the, check that they're in the right boxes, all that dry stuff, um, and then um, uh, help to create help to um, form uh, arguments about reasonableness and proportionality with our clients and the come in at whatever stage or stages they need to. Because certainly over long-running cases, the idea that you set a budget at the beginning and just stick to it is, is crazy. You know, you're going to have to be doing things in chunks. You're going to have to be revising them. And, you know, in, in cost-budgeted 
pieces of litigation that we've that we've been working on already, we've you know we've cut through some of the rules already when the courts had discretion to do it. You know, had bespoke categories of work. You know, were not uh, and and um, put off and delayed. Um, budgeting for certain phases of litigation until you know more about them. Uh, having a rather, you know, having a pretty grown-up discussion about the practicality of doing things. You know, you need you know, it takes two to tango with it. Um, but that, um, that that sort of process is something that we're quite familiar with. Also, the um, differentiation where it's needed is between uh, you know common and generic costs and individual costs and where the line is drawn and you know the, the, the how you should deal with cases that are stayed waiting for big decisions to be made uh, what you do with the cost elements of those comparing one's different cohorts and what the differences are between them um, in a cost sense, that's that's something that we that, that we that we do. Um, can only talk about it in very general terms because I know it's a platitude to say that you know every case is different, but it really is, um, and uh, uh, it, it's it's something that we um, we're used to doing. Um, we kind of join the litigation team, really. You know, the 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 subject matter of litigation is so diverse that. It would be foolish for us to think that we, um, uh, uh, you know, have and then can even get the right sort of level of expertise in terms of the the factual side of things. We've just got to be very good listeners, ask the right questions, so that we can marry the two ends of it together. That's really interesting, Andy, and it um, brings me back to how legal PR has developed within law firms, as I describe my own journey through legal PR. Uh, first of all, working in-house in a law firm and now working for a number of law firms, predominantly the top 200. Uh, And certainly what we've seen is more and more people like me, PR uh, experts, actually being in-house. And as law firm communications becomes more sophisticated and more international, including the litigation part of that, these teams are becoming bigger in-house and we now tend to still have these very much ongoing retained relationships, but more and more we're being called in to act as a third party, a sounding board, a trusted advisor, and to do a lot more of the sort of discrete project work. Are you seeing the same developments in the cost management world, i.e. are the top 200 law firms more and more bringing in their own cost specialists and then using Practico for some of the more detailed project work? Um, yeah, I mean, good question. Uh, that the, I suppose things 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 turn round full circles over time. Um, I think we. I mean, I first started in the early nineties, and outsourced cost work had probably been going since the mid seventies. Um, and there's always been firms with in-house cost departments. Um, there, they sometimes straddle uh, client billing. As well as uh, uh, as well as uh, 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 the interparties, as we in the old terminology, costs. Um, but obviously, there has to be there's ebb and flow with all of this work. So it would be unusual these days for there to be an in-house cost department that would be able to absorb uh, a very large cost project that comes along. So you tend to find that um, a lot of in-house cost uh, people are. Part of their work is actually, you know, to manage the outsourcing of uh, of, uh, of, of uh, particular cost issues when they come along. So, for example, um, we uh, we've worked um, with Hugh James down in Cardiff for many, many, many years in, in our different forms and theirs, and they have an in-house department. They know what they can do. Uh, and also they have their own protocols about if they can't turn around, if their in-house people uh, can't turn around work with a certain time, they might put it out. There's also particular types of work that they do, um, like their some of their sort of product liability um, group actions and so on and so forth, where they are actually working with other people too, um, whereby that independence tends to help, uh, where, where because, you know, we have that... Um, we, we can have that role where we're not seen to be just in one person's corner. 
um, uh, if you're talking about a lot of law firms collaborating on a steering committee for a major group action, and that's how that's part of the, that's how we 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 came to get involved with the coal work back in the nineties uh, exactly that way. Uh, we were we were introduced as a, as a, uh, a, a somebody who I wouldn't say sit over the top of, but actually worked with a group uh, of people and sort of juggled their, made sure that they were in step with each other. Um, so uh, to that extent, uh, yes, I think that's right. In terms of the, um, in terms of that trusted advisor role, um, we we do get that. We takes forever. You know, and and you know, this is a you know, it's a good and a bad thing. You know, because once you've got it, you've got it. Sort of generally speaking, um, but it takes a long time to build up people's trust, and then people move and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, but we do have that. But we are finding more and more that as a business and as the way the cost business has changed, um, that we are very much uh, the firm that gets parachuted in when people have unusual problems. Uh, so so that's. That that's that's very much how we operate. That's what our cost base is. We have to build in a bit of. Um, uh, uh, um, we can't be operating at full capacity all the time. I mean, obviously, sometimes we are. Sometimes we wish we had more capacity. But we can't be. We can't have our model as a business can't be flat out ninety percent because otherwise we'd never have the capacity to be able to take on a job at short notice. And a lot of the work that we do now. Is short notice. It is um, where you also having to be quite creative. So therefore, somebody will come to us and say, um, "Right, we're just coming out of an arbitration. You know, we've got seven days to put in <laughs> submissions. You know, we've got a partial award. We've got to put in submissions about costs, not only in terms of who should pay them, but how much they should pay. Um, and uh, you know, if you if you, you know, you need, we we need to be able to respond to that." You know, the, the, you know, there's no point saying, well, we might have somebody free in three weeks' time. Not going to cut it. Um, so, so that, that that that's the sort of business that 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 we are, um, and we have to be um, agile. I suppose is the uh, is the term in the general sense, not in the project management sense. Um, and um, you know, fortunately, you know, we also have been involved and continue to be involved with some quite long running cases. Um, and it's the blend of the two that, that that keeps the place rolling. So, I think uh, we've done the rounds here. We've um, uh, we've spent uh, a long time. I hope we haven't lost the audience. Started off as three, it's now gone down to one. But never mind. You know, we'll we'll, we'll build up from there. Um, that's a good time to wrap up. Um, very very nice to uh, see you. That's good long chat. Enjoyed Thanks, that. Andy. Very much enjoyed being part of it. Thank you. And let's do it again sometime. Definitely. Thank you. Cheers.